at Get Fit, Get Moving show with Doc Griggs and Dr. Derry. Uh, did you know that 102.3 WHIVLP New Orleans has been broadcasting for five years? We are able to support independent community voices uh, because of your support. So please go to whivfm.org and click support, or you may go to our store. We have lots of cool stuff. Uh, lots of great gifts, T-shirts, fanny packs, uh, this sort of stuff. We appreciate all your support. All uh, donations to WHIV are tax deductible uh, and oftentimes come with a personal note from me that just says thank you for supporting WHIV. My name is Mark Allendary. Uh We are not a radio station with a mission. We are a mission with a radio station, and that's to end all wars. So this is a very special edition of Get Checked, Get Fit, Get Moving. That's largely because I am very happy to say Doc Griggs isn't here. For all you Doc Griggs Aww. fans, that that's okay for all of those that just want to hear Mark Allen talk without having Doc Griggs step all over everything <laughs> that I have to say. Uh, maybe that's uh, that's something for you guys as well. But it is really a pleasure to have with us the health commissioner for the city of New Orleans, Dr. Jennifer Ovegno. Uh, as uh, Dr. Ovegno and I are going to spend the first half of this show talking about the news of the day, which of course is uh, coronavirus and COVID-19. So I just wanted to say, Dr. Ovegno, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me again. It's always great to be among friends, even if my good friend Doc Riggs is not here. I'm sure he is spreading great messages wherever he is. He is. I think he's doing, he's writing, um, he's with the 100 Black Men uh, in Atlanta, and they're writing their statement about COVID-19. So he's doing really, he's doing great work as as he always is. So I just wanted to, I I, just as we jump into coronavirus and and, uh, and I hope you don't mind us just getting started right off the bat, um, the number of cases that uh, as of this morning are, uh, and that was uh, uh, 1,400 GMT, so that's probably about 3 in the morning. Our time is 116,458 cases, with deaths being 4,091, and fortunately, the number of recovered is 64,750. And I guess the uh, the news of the day right now, Dr. Vegno, if you don't mind us just jumping right into it, is that the state of Louisiana, uh, Governor uh, Edwards, uh, as, as did uh, Mayor Cantrell and yourself, had press conferences yesterday to talk about the first case that uh, is here in the state of Louisiana it was a Jefferson Parish person who uh, is in an Orleans Parish hospital. So is there any information you can give us? Um, sure. Thanks, uh, Dr. Derry. Always good to be with an infectious disease specialist in this kind of uh, this kind of situation. Yes, this is something that we've we've been waiting for. We've been preparing for. Um, I you know, we were somewhat surprised it took this long. I think we were the, maybe the 35th state to have a case, but now it's here. And um, so now we can put our plans into action. Um, as you said, yes, we announced that we found, were given the results yesterday morning <clears throat> and were able to message those to the public pretty much immediately. Um, what we know is it's a Jefferson Parish resident, like you said, hospitalized in Orleans Parish, um, and, and right now they're doing well. Um, obviously, we do want to protect privacy. We are um, taking our cues from the Louisiana Department of Health um, to make sure we're protecting patient privacy. What I do know is that the work began immediately um, from the Louisiana Department of Health to really track that patient and figure out who that patient might have been in contact with um, during the time they were symptomatic and hospitalized. Certainly the healthcare workers um, are of our 
of our concern, but also anyone that might have had close contact, and then um, getting in touch with them and, and giving proper guidance. Sure. So uh, <coughs> essentially, if the if the uh, if the patient was in a or this index case, at least for the state of Louisiana, was seeing clinics, let's say late last week, uh, complaining of UR upper respiratory type infection uh, symptoms, uh, the state would then contact the clinic that they were in uh, because they were potential uh, sites of exposure. Right. Yeah. They are our state epidemiologists are really good. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they do this all the time, right. whether it's measles or mumps or tuberculosis. As you know, there's a lot of infectious diseases still floating out there. And so they're really very skilled in um, interviewing the patient, which in this case, it sounds like they're able to do, which is great, and really tracking tracking those movements. You know, the this is a challenge faced by states all over the place. Um, this is hard work, and it's very detailed work, as you can imagine. With one case, we can we can do it pretty thoroughly. Um, you know, in in places like Seattle, where they now have multiple, multiple dozens, if not over a hundred cases, um, it gets a little harder to do, as you can imagine. So, one of the issues uh, that we're that we're seeing is uh, you you have. Um you know, and the numbers are still a little murky, but between 1,500 and 3,000 tests that have been done here in the U.S., right. and you compare that with something like South Korea that's had 10,000 tests a right. day, their their mortality rate is 0.5. And I look toward that mortality rate as being the most accurate of the mortality rates because their denominator, they're, they're testing so many people, right. they're really able to capture. But when you look at our, our the denominator or you, when you look at our mortality rate, it's something like 5.7%. And to me, that just that's obviously errored. I don't think that's a reflection of our healthcare right. system. It's more of a reflection of the fact that we're just not testing people. And so um, I know that over the weekend, I think we were up to like eleven tests here right. in the state. Um, and is there any? Do we have any any understanding of what's happening with the test? How more tests can be available? I, I know that I received messaging this morning from Louisiana State Medical Board. I'm sure you did too. That said, that LabCorp and Quest are now offering tests as well. Yes. And, and that has been a, a frustration, I think, of a lot of physicians um, in the U.S. is that uh, the rollout of testing was a little bit problematic um, in the way it was rolled out to the states. There were problems. The CDC had to send the tests back. Our state lab, as you said, has been up and running from the from the moment the tests were verified. We've actually done um, 45 tests in okay. the state. And all of those... Sorry, I got that number Oh, no, wrong. no. That, that was the number that was out, right. but this is sort of up to the minute. Right. Um, again, only one positive. Um, you know, all of those were in consultation with the State Department of Health, meeting some restrictive criteria, and that cr criteria was was you know the best we had at the time. Sure. As you said, um, Quest and LabCorp both now are going to have commercial availability. It's going to differ a little bit from the way the state does it. Now, all tests being sent to the state, so the state has a handle on the exact number. When the commercial labs come online, um, and I'm sorry, let me back up, the, the state is has taken the, the onus on notifying people, notifying doctors, notifying patients, you know, in this case, the one case they would notify. As tests become more widely available and as doctors are able to use Quest or LabCorp services to test for, for patients, um, the guidelines are relaxing a little bit. Um, now, it, as, as you read in the brief this morning, um, any clinician that has a suspicion is able to will be likely able to test commercially. Turnaround time is a couple of days, and the onus is really going to be on the physician to get the results and to notify any 
future positive patients and help walk them through what a quarantine looks like, right? Sure. So we do expect the number of the testing capability to expand significantly. And like you said, that denominator to grow. Um, you know, you mentioned the South Korea percentage. There was a, another study that estimated it. Maybe it's about 0.8% or 1%, sure. which is a really bad flu season. Sure. Let's remember, sure. flu kills about one in a thousand. All those numbers are still higher than that. And let's not forget, we're still in the midst of flu right, season. Right. So a double virus whammy right, right. You know, is really concerning. Yeah, and I expect that we're going to see more flu cases because people are going to be right. looking for them. Right, so exactly. More, more so than usual. And so there, I, it's everywhere. Flu right. is still very right. high. So let's take a quick step back. Uh, let's get back sure. to testing for a quick second. Sure. Can we just divert to flu and just talk to us about what's going on with flu this, this winter? Yeah, you know, I, we talked about this last year. Our flu season started early and it never stopped. Right. It changed. So whereas in the beginning we were seeing a ton of flu B, you know, there's A and B. B is generally the milder form. Lots of it in kids, even before kids had the time to go to the doctor and get their shot. Um, and then it switched to flu A like we expect every year around the winter months, um, Christmas. You know, I had a child who was fully vaccinated. We all get our flu shots and she still got flu A. Mm, mm. Now, she had a much milder case of it. Yes. And I was really happy for that. Right. And um, can but, I just interject yeah. real quickly for those that are listening? Even It is possible to still get the flu even though you got the flu shot. But I, I like to use the example <laughs> that a flu shot is like wearing a seatbelt. A seatbelt isn't going to prevent you from getting into a car accident. But you're going to be very happy that you had it should you get into a car accident. So even though there may be a mismatch, I'm going to ask you about mismatch in a second, even though there may be a mismatch, in other words, what is the vaccine covering? What strains are the vaccine covering versus what strains are actually circulating in, in, uh, in, uh, in, the, in a community? That's referred to as a mismatch if the vaccine doesn't cover the circulating strains. Even though there may be a mismatch, you're going to be happy that your immune system was primed for flu, even if it sees a flu virus that it wasn't uh, protected, the, the vaccine wasn't initially protecting for it, but it's still going to offer some protection, like Dr. Vegna said, her daughter, your daughter? I yeah, think you said. my daughter. It's, I mean, she was out for, she was down and out for about three days right. instead of a week or two right. weeks. That's right, a right. significant difference. Right, and then also, you're going to also be significantly less infectious <laughs> right. as well, so that's really important. Right, none of my other children got the flu right. as far as we could tell right, so that right, was right. great so do we know uh, about the mismatch or we're not sure yeah the the reports have still been that there's there's a decent match between right. um the flu shot and this year's strain right um it is a little bit of a question to me why flu b was really pop sure. predominant earlier sure, in the sure, year and sure. i don't know if that's a local trend or really a national trend right, yet right. um you know we get flu estimates every week we are still in a high flu area. Um, as you can imagine, it peaked after the holidays, and but it's still fairly high. Sure. So there's if you've been to a hospital recently, um, you know, they're full. Yeah. And part of that um, part of that volume is because we're still seeing people coming in with the flu. Um, that's why we're so vigilant against COVID because we do not want to add more burden to an already stretched healthcare system, not just in New Orleans, but across the country. Sure. And that, and that's a big concern. Again, as Dr. Vegno was saying, I just, and I think it's a point that's, uh, that bears repeating. We already have so much, uh, flu, uh, uh folk, flu, folks that are in the hospital because of flu that are having respiratory syndromes that are severe enough that they actually have to be in a hospital, uh, now 
adding to that uh, potential for an illness with the this novel coronavirus, uh, which causes COVID-19, uh, it's just going to really potentially add to a significant strain uh, in the hospital. So shifting back over to COVID <laughs> and and the testing. Um, so a couple things. One is um, what do we, so if, if somebody, do you have recommendations? What are the Louisiana state recommendations for being tested? So if somebody is listening and wants to know if they have, um, if they have the COVID virus, what, what are, what, what, what would make them uh, um, eligible to be tested? Question number one and question number two, how does a physician uh, or clinician know whether or not to use state testing services versus commercial testing right. services? Great question. So most of the, the um, guidance in terms of testing to date have been about your exposure, right? Certainly, if you um, are in, you're having symptoms that are consistent with COVID, and so that's fever, cough, shortness of breath. Not nausea, not diarrhea, not headaches, right? It's, you know, pretty pretty limited to respiratory symptoms plus fever. If you have traveled in the last two weeks to a high-risk area, right now those high-risk areas are five countries, China, Iran, Italy, um, South Korea, and Japan. It is true that cases across Europe have been surging, so that list might change. But if you've traveled and you have symptoms, um, then I would definitely call your healthcare provider, right? If you don't have a primary care physician, as we know that some people don't, the Louisiana Department of Health has a hotline. If you Google LDH coronavirus, open to the public, you can call them and say, hey, this is, you know, I've been, I went to this country and now I feel like I'm having symptoms. Um, If you, if you haven't been to a high-risk country, haven't been in contact with someone that you know has COVID, and again, that that would be rare in Louisiana, Um, but you're still feeling you have symptoms of fever and cough, again, call your healthcare professional, talk it through with them. They, we are trying to get folks to call rather than showing up in doctor's offices or showing up in emergency departments. Um, What physicians then can do. There's a special state health department hotline 24-7 for physicians to get guidance. And as I said, as the availability of commercial labs becomes online, the guidance to the physician, if the patient doesn't necessarily meet the the strict guidelines, the exposure guidelines, um, you know, the, the state is likely going to say, if you feel in your clinical opinion that this person needs to get tested, um, then here are, you know, here's how you would get tested at a commercial lab. Most physicians' offices, if not all, and hospitals have some sort of relationship with these big labs. And the ones that I've talked to have already been in contact saying, okay, we're going to start testing in the office. How do we get the samples to you? What's the turnaround time? Again, the onus is going to be on that physician then to be in contact with the patient. So, okay, so two questions for you then. So one is... um, what is the recommendation as as a public health expert uh and then i'll i'll, I'll share what my thoughts are on it as well uh because i have i, I don't know which way to fall so i'm going to defer to you as as uh, as health commissioner and if you're tuned in you are listening to 102.3 WHIV this is the get check get fit get moving show with doc griggs and dr Derry. doc griggs is uh, out uh today writing some very important policy uh regarding covid virus in atlanta I'm with the health commissioner of the state of louisiana also uh professor assistant professor of medicine Associate Professor Professor of Medicine (laughs) at the Louisiana State University uh, and Emergency Room Physician, Dr. Jennifer Vegna. So 
Is it better? <laughs> so this is a tough question. Sure. I think it's tough. Um, if somebody calls my office, let's say somebody calls my office and, 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 uh, and let me say that they, as an HIV doctor, I think it's a little different than somebody calling the, the, the general practice side. So let's say sure. they call the general practice side and they say, um, I've got fever, cough, and shortness of breath. I want to come in and be tested. So my first thought is this. Um, and let's say that the virus was a little bit more widespread, right? Let's say we have... Sure. 50 cases in, in the state of Louisiana. Sure. Is it better to tell that person to stay home and not risk exposure to uh, on their way over to the clinic and potentially exposing people on the way in or, or what have you? Or is it better to have that, uh, um, is it better to have that person stay home and risk the, the likelihood of, of secondary exposure to other individuals? Or is it better to have them come in and get tested so that we have an accurate denominator or an accurate number so that we know what the burden of disease is? Right. I think that's not an easy question. Uh, thank you for asking I, yes, it. Yes, I know. <laughs> but, you know here Coming are, on here was a... <laughs> right. Here are my thoughts. You know, the what I'm hearing from other public health experts is if we get to the point where we have widespread community, wide community spread, which we're not there yet. Right. And it looks like as it's looking now that most people get very mild illnesses and do not require hospitalization or anything else. Then in that case, if it's someone who's calling their doctor who seems to have mild symptoms, you might just say, look, just stay home, see how you feel. Don't go to work. If you really start to feel bad, call me back. However, I would think particularly um, for many of the patients that you treat, if they have HIV um, or other, you know, immunocompromising, right. Right. That's, uh, um, yeah. you know, if they've already been out in the community for a couple of days, that drive to your office is not going to be any worse than the drive they took to sure. Walmart or Costco sure, yesterday. Sure. So in that case, what, you know, you might just be creative and say, okay, yeah, I'd really like to test you. Um, Call me when you're outside my office. I'm going to have a staff member meet you and put you in, you know, a, a special room so you do not have to wait in the waiting room, right? And so create kind of a pathway so then you could have the appropriate um, protective equipment for your staff. You know that person is coming in. You put them in the room. You assess whether or not they're sick enough to be hospitalized. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. You do the test. You give them strict precautions to go straight home and say, do not you know, don't leave your house until I give you a sure, call in the next sure. couple of days. And so I think that there's some flexibility there. Sure, sure. But what, no matter what, we want to minimize the risk to other folks. Sure. Sure. So, so what you're speaking to then uh, is se several points. Um, one is that physicians or clinicians or just any clinic, uh, um, any of our clinics uh, locally or around the state, around the country for that matter, should have some policy for getting folks in uh, quickly uh, so that they limit the uh, exposure to other folks Absolutely. that would be in the waiting rooms, that the clinic should have some identified individuals who would be the point person uh, should somebody with COVID uh, or potential uh, COVID uh, evaluation show up so that they actually are met in the parking lot or what have you. Uh, uh, masks are put on uh, and, and, and the person, of course, and we're going to talk about PPE in a quick second, um, and then that they would be kind of either brought in through a side door or a back door. Um, and, uh, you know, yesterday I had, uh, I was telling you uh, right before we went on air that I had a potential exposure that we ruled out, but I know that the clinic staff, when they saw me walk out with my PPE, they immediately shut all the doors to the, uh, uh, okay. to the waiting room and Good. cause I was going to be walking by. And, uh, and of course, w w you know, people get, 
you know, very scared. I, I tend not to look at social media very much, but today I was just flipping through, uh, through some social media and I was, I, and I haven't looked at it probably in like five or six days. And I was struck by just a quick glance just gave me kind of like a quick, like spot check, uh, of like the fear and, and yeah. the crazy things people are saying, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so, uh, so, you know, again, it's important, I think for clinicians to have some sort of plan to get people in so that there isn't any frightening sort of, you know, and that people are in and out. So this leads to the next question, which I think is important is, and I have m- my answer on this too, which is, I, I think that if you are testing somebody for COVID-19, that should also come with the recommendation that they remain isolated yes. until the results come back. Absolutely. I, I would totally agree with that. Um, and again, understanding how long that might take. You know, our state lab is able to process things in a few hours, which is great. Um, but the commercial labs, it's probably going to be a few days. So sure. just giving your patients that information so that they can begin planning and you know maybe somebody can deliver meals to them or you know somebody else can get their mail or whatever it is is important sure and then if we're going through the state lab um is there a delivery system or do they there's a courier yes and again everything that goes to the state lab you you as a provider you'll call that 24 7 hotline right and they'll give you the steps to do it super okay so um now i guess let's quickly just talk about ppes and and personal protection like what are recommendations for uh, for healthcare workers uh, that are going to be uh, managing or, or interacting with folks that are potentially being um, uh, evaluated for COVID-19. Right. So if you're talking in a hospital setting, um, all of our hospitals have isolation rooms. They're all doing screening at triage. So a patient walks in and they say, I have fever and cough and shortness of breath. And I'm sure this differs hospital to hospital, but they've all you know, most of them in the area have had some some dry runs at this, which is great. Um, and so they they will assess that one person will assess and say, okay, we think this person might meet criteria for testing. You're going straight to our isolation room, um, which is a negative pressure room, so that you know the droplets aren't spreading. Um, they are really trying to limit the number of healthcare workers that go in and out of that room. So I practice clinically in an academic medical center. There are medical students and residents and nurses and techs and a million people going in and out of your room. For these suspected cases, they're really trying to say, no, one doctor can go in and one nurse can go in. And that's partially to limit spread, but it's also to preserve the protective equipment. All over the country, there are shortages of protective equipment. So every time you might think about buying that mask on Amazon, that's a really bad idea because you're taking it out of the hands of a frontline healthcare worker. And those are among our highest risk exposures. Sure. And so we really don't want to get to a situation where we're sh- 20% of our hospital staff has to stay home because they're quarantined. Um, and then that doesn't leave enough staff for folks who come in with their everyday emergencies. Sure. So just on the topic of masks real quick, I just also, you know, I want to, this is a little thing that I have been talking about masks. So we're talking about surgical masks. We haven't said anything about N95, right. so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So surgical masks. So I just want to be clear that the, the size of the virus is 0.1 micron. Now, just to give that size some context, the size of a human hair is 75 microns. <laughs> okay. So the stitching 
on a surgical mask yep. is such that it's like using a chain link fe- a chain link fence to hold out flooding waters. Right. The virus is going to get <laughs> gonna is going is going to get right through. Right. So um, so now now the masks that that the clinicians and physicians uh, use are N95s, right. and and those masks have much tighter stitching, uh, such that it keeps out those respiratory viruses. The problem with those masks, unfortunately, is that can't wear them for very long you can't <laughs> and they have to be properly fit yes that's um, absolutely. and most of us you know have had our mask fit tests and that's sometimes a requirement to yes. practice at a hospital which i think is fantastic so you simply buying an n95 mask you know off the internet it might not fit correctly right. and you know again if you are sick and you are coming in you know people are coming to your house to care for you it makes sense for you to wear a mask when you're interacting with them. Um, I know we see a lot of images worldwide of people wearing masks everywhere. There, there really is not a lot of great evidence that the general public should go around wearing a mask. And again, we've got to conserve those supplies for folks who really need it. Sure. So you, you had mentioned at the top of the hour that, um, and maybe kind of give us a quick breakdown of the clinical, not only the clinical syndrome, but some of the numbers that go along with it. You had initially said that 80% of people who, uh, uh, who are infected with COVID that we've seen at least from data out of China, mm-hmm. um, about 80% have a mild upper respiratory infection. Maybe kind of fill in some of the blanks. What yeah. about the other 20%? Yeah, that's a, um, so that's the, there's a big study out of China, and so we're really looking at their, their cases. Um, and it was great in that it broke, it broke individuals down by age group. So what we're seeing with this, a little bit different than flu, is that young people, kids, young adults, and then, you know, healthy middle-aged adults really um, have very low mortality rates. So they're getting mild cases. They're recovering well. Most of them do not need to be hospitalized. They can stay at home just as if you would with the flu or anything else. Where in China they saw the highest mortality rates, and we're starting to see that bear out in the U.S., although I don't know what the percentages are, are in our elderly population, um, those who are in hospitalized those who have severe medical conditions. So that's why if you look at what's happening in in Seattle, the nursing center is really the epicenter. Um, And they've had multiple deaths because these are very sick, very old individuals to begin with, and they just are not mounting a response. So that's that's what keeps me up at night. Um, I based on everything we know, I feel like um, those of us that are relatively healthy will do fine. But I worry about my elderly neighbor who has chronic medical conditions. Um, and I worry about, you know, somebody's grandma in the nursing home or, you know, a 60 year old with chronic lung disease or maybe going through chemo. Um, those are the folks that we really want to limit their exposure to this. And so we're really asking if you have underlying serious medical conditions, if you're elderly, you know, you don't need to go to parades this weekend. Um, You can skip them. You can go next year. uh, And that's for your protection, not, not for ours. Right. So then let's quickly talk about that. And then we'll jump back to the clinical syndrome um, because I think it's important and have a couple more questions I want to ask you about the nursing home facilities and, and correctional facilities and stuff like that. Right. Uh, And certainly uh, overnight shelters and and stuff like that. But um, just speaking real quickly as a public health official, we've seen South by Southwest canceled. Um, We're seeing that in Dublin, St. Patrick days parades are being canceled. Boston, which has a huge, Mm 
Irish population also canceled their St. Patrick's Days. Um, I I have a strong suspicion that we're going to start seeing cancellations of stuff. I, I'm watching French Quarter Fest and Jazz Fest uh, to see um, what's going to happen there. But uh, certainly we have St. Patrick's Day this weekend. Um, so what are your thoughts as a public health official? And are you do you have the authority to 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 make those sorts of decisions uh, in the setting that we're in right now to to cancel something like that? Right. So um, I don't know that there. I'm not sure exactly where the authority is. The the state has the authority to declare a public health emergency. Um, the governor has the authority to declare a state of emergency, as does the mayor for the city. And they we have not gone to that yet. And um, we're watching other states, and there's a lot of variation, but a lot of states have sort of taken that approach. For the first case, you know, we're not going to declare a state of emergency. Um, we are in constant communication with the festival organizers. And each we're, we're trying to look at each festival as its own unique thing. French Quarter Fest and Jazz Fest are very different in terms of who comes to them, how you get to them, what the layout is. Um, and so we've already been thinking through mitigation measures, sure. right? Um, right now, we, we do not feel like canceling this weekend's parades is necessary. But we are asking folks to stay home if they're sick. And you don't necessarily have to get that kiss on the cheek, right? right. I, I actually read this morning that they were canceling the kiss <laughs> on the cheek. That's which, good for many reasons. Yes, thank, thank you for actually... Right, so this is a good right. thing. Yes. Um, right, you know, you're six feet away from the float, right? Uh, and you can you can elbow bump the, the guy with the tux sure. and the roses. Um, but again, if you are young and healthy and you want to participate, use common sense, bring that hand sanitizer with you, be at a friend's house where you can wash your hands regularly. If you are older or sick, um, this is not the year to go to parades, and we're we're really encouraging you to stay home. Is there a threshold that needs to be met before you or the parade or the festival organizers will start considering cancellation? That's a great question, and that actually came up. I was listening to some national experts on the way over here, and and that was her point. There is no trigger, right? right? There is no trigger like no one thing where oh if it gets to x then we do that and and i think each each municipality is really taking it differently if you look across the country at um when schools are being canceled when they're not being canceled it really is very specific to the community um so again we are i i I do want to reassure everybody we are really trying to thread this needle of health and safety and also continuing to keep our cultural traditions alive and knowing that they have economic impact and being very sensitive to that. But again, everything we do is going to be the interest of health and safety first. Um, and we're just trying to make the best decisions that sure. we can. And it might change sure. two days from now. <laughs> uh, everybody listening, I just, you know, you know that I talk about WHIB as being the voice of dissent in New Orleans. And, and we do take that uh, very seriously. But I do want you guys to appreciate the amazing work that the city of New Orleans is doing. And certainly when Dr. Van Gogh took this job, I'm sure she had no idea that a, <laughs> a new <laughs> <Nope>. global <laughs> pandemic was going to come her way. And I just want you guys to appreciate the difficulty uh, in a job like this and making decisions to make sure, like she said, she's threading the needle. She has to make sure that every decision that is being made not only is important for public health uh, perspectives, but also tradition, uh, conserving the traditions, our traditions, our cultural traditions, and then also making sure that the cultural economy continues to, to, to click along as well. And so I just wanted to just say, wow, what a difficult job. <laughs> well, thank you. And, <laughs> and it's, <some laughs> it's important that 
that our voices, um, that the voices of those who maybe don't always have access to kind of the mainstream are heard. It was really important for us to translate all of our materials in Spanish and Vietnamese um, because we don't want our um, undocumented community to feel like they can't get medical help. We don't want our Vietnamese community to, to be in the dark. Sure. So we want to know if there's a community we're not reaching um, that we can understand what their unique concerns are and make sure. sure we're planning for that. If you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is the Get Check, Get Fit, Get Moving show with Doc Griggs and Dr. Derry. I'm Dr. Derry. Doc Griggs is out uh, in Atlanta writing some very important policy uh, for the COVID-19. With us today is Associate Professor of Medicine at the Louisiana State University uh, and also Emergency Room Physician, Dr. Jennifer Vega who is now the uh, health commissioner for the city of New Orleans. And again, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Vegno. A couple more questions. I know that your time is somewhat limited here. Um, getting uh, uh, back uh, uh, to vulnerable populations, which I think is um, you and I do very, very similar work, just looking at it from different perspectives, uh, in which that, that what has driven the two of us in, in previous interviews that I've done with you is really the, our commitment to working with vulnerable populations. And so this morning I was reading a really troubling article about what COVID-19 could look like in American correction facilities, mm-hmm. uh, especially facilities that crowd lots of uh, people in aisle at once. And something that did not occur to me was what happens when guards are not able to show up uh, to work uh, as well or folks right. that actually make a correction facilities uh, work. So when you take a big step back, of course, that led me to think about what's happening in Seattle with the uh, nursing home uh, in Seattle. So that made me, of course, think about nursing homes and what happens when the assistants uh, and folks at nursing homes start getting ill and are unable to show up or have to be quarantined. Who's going to manage that? Uh, and then, of course, homeless shelters or overnight shelters. And then just the whole mishmash of stuff. <laughs> so um, I know this is another really difficult question, and I hate to put you on the spot, but how is the city or how is planning moving ahead with something like that? Well, number one, I want people to understand we are thinking about that, and we have been thinking about those scenarios from the beginning because those are the ones, like I said, that really keep me up at night. Um, we've been in contact with both the the um, Orleans Justice Center, with the sheriff and the medical personnel there, as well as the JJIC, the Youth Center. Um, you know, again, they all have some protocols in place because they worry about a tuberculosis case or, you know, flu pandemic or, or flu within the, the jail, excuse me. Um, and so we're, number one, we wanted to hear sort of what their gaps were. And then we've offered to provide assistance with that. So we're in con- um, consultation with them. The nursing homes, um, it's important for us at the city to be a convener, right? While we might not have any specific power over what a hospital or a nursing home or a, you know anybody else does, what is critically important is that we get everybody in the room. So if I'm ex-nursing home, I want to know which hospital might I send a patient to that I'm concerned and then what are the ripple effects so that we don't... Um, overbalance, overburden one versus another. So on Friday, we're having a meeting with all the healthcare facilities, nursing home and dialysis centers. That's another area. Sure. That's another, that's a a very vulnerable population. So that I sort of at at the city will have heard what everybody's plans and can analyze what the gaps are and say, okay, we need to make sure we have this scenario covered so that we know where to go. Um, We're meeting, we've been thinking about our homeless um, individuals We've been in contact with the shelter. They've been they're on with some of our meetings, but we're actually designating 
a team um, from EMS and the health department to go to shelters to sort of think, make sure we know what their plans are and figure out how we would need to assist if there was a case there. Um, so a lot of this is really people intensive. And I sure. think that that's great because the plans are only as good as the people that can implement sure, them. Sure. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really thinking hard about this. We're really making sure we can help those facilities be as prepared as possible and that we can anticipate the worst. You know, over the course of the last couple of days, we've been hearing a lot about, and it's certainly yesterday uh, as well, uh, we've been hearing a lot about what happens with uh, service industry, yes. uh, folks who are already another vulnerable population because these are the lowest paid individuals, yes. uh, whereas I am privileged enough if I get sick, I generate a salary and I'm able to stay home and still am able to pay my bills and, and mortgage or what have you. But other individuals are, if they, if they're quarantined and stay home, if they're not at work working, uh, they're unable to generate a salary. And I worry that there could be a balance of, you know, this may shift more folks into even more vulnerable housing, uh, instability. So, um, there, you know, and I know part of your work since you started as health commissioner with the city of New Orleans has really been focused on paid sick days, uh, and so can you give us an update on what's happening with that and how? And that's another, again, it's a difficult question. I'm sorry to put you on the spot because these are, har- these are hard <laughs> questions. These are hard issues. And I know that, uh, you know, I know that we, we want the best out of society uh, to try to protect all individuals. But I, I, I worry about our, our, our service industry folks. Absolutely. And so do we. Um, and all of those who do not have access to paid sick leave. Paid sick leave is an inexpensive way that benefits both business and health. It has been proven over and over sure, again. Sure. There are 32 states, I think, that have some sort of paid sick leave. It was studies that show that with people who, communities that have paid sick leave, their flu and upper respiratory Absolutely. rates go down significantly because, because the people that serve the food and drinks, which is how respiratory viruses <laughs> yes. are transmitted, they're not there serving food and drinks, right? right. They're at home. It's healthy people serving them. So yeah, like you said, we've been starting to talk about this publicly whenever you know we go out and present our community health assessment. I mean, you know, make sure to mention we've been meeting with policy groups. In fact, just last week we met with a policy group that's really working on this. We have a day to go to Baton Rouge to talk about this. The 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 challenge is that the city of New Orleans itself does not have any authority to tell either a business or the entire city you have to do this, sure. right? So if I could have flipped a switch and, and given everybody paid sick sure. leave, I would have done it 18 months ago. Sure. Um, but what what since, you know, never miss a good crisis, right? So since this has started, since we've been doing press appearances and meetings, um, you know, we've made sure to say, businesses, we need you to think through how you are going to pay your employees if they have to be at home, either if they're sick or if their children are sick or if their children's school gets shut down. Um, it is not in your benefit to have them come to work. It is not in your benefit to ha- to fire them and have to hire somebody else. It is absolutely beneficial, both financially and from a health perspective, that you decide how you're going to make this work for everyone. And, you know, this is taking place on a national national conversation, um, which is great. I'm glad to see some congressmen really pushing for a paid sick leave 
um, bill, whether it's emergency or whether it's permanent, sure. we completely support that. I'm going to be saying this every time I get in front of a camera. Sure, <laughs> so. sure, sure. Now, the only is are, are is in in terms of policy, and I don't quite understand how mm-hmm. this stuff works. If there was a mandate that was to come down, would, is it the state that does that? Is it the? It's not the city because I know the way that Liana had explained it to me yesterday was that this that this that um, the way that businesses employee works is a partnership between a business and their employee right. so who who is the one that that makes that jurisdiction so or has a jurisdiction the state in- could do something like you know maine just did recently and said we're passing a law that says all businesses with x number of employees whatever it is 10 15 employees have to offer x number of paid sick leave days to all workers um and uh, you know that's just a sort of a template so louisiana could absolutely choose to do that there are folks who are trying to introduce this who are trying to get legislation passed the city already does it i mean the city is leading by example we have paid sick leave and i am incredibly grateful for that paid sick leave you know as an er doc we generally don't get paid (laughs) sick leave so um so but you know really it's at the state level and then at the there are individual businesses who i know have really done the right thing and said oh yeah you're sick maybe you're worried because you went to italy over you can stay home and i'm going to pay you sure sure so lastly i know that last question i know that you have to go um can you just comment on what you see coming forward Uh, you know one thing that i've been telling individuals is that um expect that there's going to be a disruption in life. So maybe comment a bit about Um, And again, like being an ER doctor, I think is really good (laughs) preparation for this because you never know when the next, you know, wave is going to hit. Um, Again, we're just asking people to be sensible, to not panic, right? This is not the time. This is facts, not fear. It's not the time to panic, Um, to, to look outside yourselves. Um, If you're a regular young or healthy person, um, take stock of that, be grateful for that and say, okay, who in my life, um, might, might need some help. Uh, maybe it's your aunt and call her and say, Hey, do you have an extra month of your medication? Do you need me to go get groceries for you? Um, you know, if, if, what is you you're you can't get to some place that you need to get to how can i help make that for you um and you know most of the experts are saying this is going to get worse before it gets better so if we can just come together as a community i mean this is new orleans we right. plan better than anybody right. else yeah, we do. Right? right we should yeah. nail we're gonna nail yeah. this i understand <laughs> that that uh that other police departments come to the nopd to train from them Absolutely. in terms of crowd management because of Absolutely. how good they do uh it, how good we right. are in planning with large groups and stuff so yes i I know for myself, I've been telling people, and in fact, we just released a small video this morning. Uh, my recommendations are please, please wash your hands all the time. I've waited my entire career to not have to shake hands, and now I get <laughs> yes. to elbow bump. So. But wash your hands 20 seconds uh, and, uh, and or use uh, um, hand sanitizer that has 16 to 90% uh, alcohol in it. Please, 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 if anybody's listening, go immediately to a pharmacy and buy a oral thermometer. So that this way, when you call a doctor's office, we can really define what a fever is. Most people, I'm, I'm sure it's happened to you. Oh, I've had a fever, you know, and you, <laughs> right. in the ER, and they've got a temperature of 98.2, right? right? right, right, right. You feel like you're hot. You don't right. really have a fever. Sure. Your body plays a little trick with you. You think that you have a fever. You don't. So we're defining fevers as anything above 100.4 or 38 degrees Celsius. And lastly, like Dr. Vegno said, please make sure you have a stock up on your medications and also get other flu and cold-like medications. Get cough medicine. 
medicine. The only way to make a cough stop is with cough medicine. A cough is not going to go away by itself. Uh, make sure you have either uh, ibuprofen or naproxen or Tylenol, those sorts of pain relievers and, and fever reducers uh, as well. And just probably uh, make sure that you have food and water. And please, just like Dr. Vegna was saying, make sure that your neighbors check up on folks that you know that are vulnerable. So with that, Dr. Vegna, thank you so thank much. I know you you've been Barry. so busy. This is such a busy no, I'm, time for I'm you. honored to be here. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to miss the Tibetan monks because I yes. can really use some chanting right about now. So. Yes. Yeah, so that is a clue as to what's coming on next. We have some Tibetan monks that are actually lining up outside in the green oh. room right now. We're going to flip over to some, uh, some music for right now, but please come back. Uh, we are going to have some Tibetan monks uh, doing some chanting uh, with us uh, in just a moment. So thank you so much, Dr. Vagdo. The work thank that you, you do here is really inspiring. Thank you so much. Thank you. To her place near the river You can hear the boats go by You can spend the night beside her And you know that she's half crazy But that's why you want to be there And she feeds you tea and oranges That come all the way from China And just when you mean to tell her That you have no love to give her Then she gets you she lets the river answer that you've always been her lover And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you know she will trust you For you've touched her perfect body with your mind Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water And he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower And when he knew for certain only drowning men could see him He said all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them but he himself was broken Long before the sky would open Forsaken, almost human He sank beneath your wisdom Like a stone And you want to travel with him And you want to travel blind And you think maybe you'll for he's touched your perfect body with his mind Now Suzanne takes your hand And she leads you to the river She is wearing rags and feathers From Salvation Army counter And the sun pours down like honey Shows you where to look Among the garbage and the flowers There are heroes in the seaweed There are children in the morning They are leaning out for love They will lean that way forever While Suzanne holds the mirror 
for she's touched your perfect body with her mind. I can't make the hills. The system is shot. Absolutely. So it is a real honor and pleasure uh, to have on our, our next guest here on the Get Check, Get Fit, Get Moving show. Um, and uh, I am speaking uh, with uh, Menyak uh, Rem- Rembucha. Rembuche. Rembuche, uh, who, uh, is a, um, who is a monk from the Dripang Gomang. Monastery. Monastery, which is located in, in southern South India. South India. And uh, I know that you're here uh, for a couple days in New Orleans, touring New Orleans. Uh, and But before we talk about what you're doing, can you talk a bit about some of your mission? Yes. The, our, we have uh, three missions to visit here in America. So first mission is that sharing the message of compassion and loving kindness through the interfaith and let's say create... Uh, create the better society and community. So, yeah, and also one reason that promote our ancient Tibetan cultures. Right. And in third, that are raising funds to educate, uh, and educate and feeding and house and healthcare for the monks. More than two thousand monks who live in the India. Right. Yeah. So right. That's the reason. And it says um, that uh, you are a Gishe Larampa. Uh, yes, w- Gishe Larampa. What does that mean? This is uh, equivalent to the PhD degree in the Buddhist philosophy. Oh, okay, got yeah. it. That's amazing. Yeah. And then you're on tour also with six other geishas as well. Y- yes, this time we are eight monks and all our geishas. All yes. and all our geishas. And today we have we have a total. We have two others that are here yeah. uh, as well, right? Yes. That that is uh, that is amazing. So Thank some you. of the events that are gonna are gonna be happening. Gail, do you want to jump on real quickly, sure. um, and uh, talk to us about some of the events that are going to be happening? Okay, tomorrow morning. Uh, the Jaipungamong monks will be creating a sacred sand mandala for world peace at the New Orleans Academy of Fine Arts. Sure. So the opening ceremony is tomorrow morning beginning at 10 o'clock. Then there's viewing of the mandala for the next three days, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And the dissolution will happen Friday evening at 5 o'clock. And Rinpoche might be Mm -hmm. able to speak about what the San Mandala means yes, and what the you. dissolution means. I was going to ask, mm-hmm. can you help us understand what the mandala is and what uh, the dissolution sure, is? Sure, sure, sure. Dissolution ceremony is one of the, our ancient Tibetan traditions. After we complete the mandala, we are going to dissolve, dismantle by the sweeping the sand in the centers. It is uh, symbolized to impermanence. From that, we are giving message that impermanence, everything's what exists, everything's a temporary, everything's a change, nothing's a last forever. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So the the sand mandala is it like a, is it like a like a, a design that yeah. is made? Yes, or? sand mandala. It's actually originated from the tantric teachings, and it's brought to in Tibet in 11th century. Got it. And one of the very sacred art, 
And also, the every aspect of the mandala, they have a different meanings. From that, we learn about everything, like a compassion and wisdom and emptiness, everything. Yeah. So, and, and are they always the same? So, would uh, uh, a mandala dedicated to compassion mm-hmm. always be the mm-hmm. same design, or is no? It, they have uh, many different designs uh-huh. and patterns and everything, because uh, they have uh, so many different deities. Depend on that, they have uh, many different mandalas, like a. Um, uh, the Medicine Buddha's mandala and compassion and the Manjushri mandala, they have many different mandalas. So sure. for that, the monks, before starting the mandala, they have to memorize everything about it and ha- they have to learn about the drawing and coloring. So it takes more than a few years. Yeah, I would imagine <laughs> it probably does. <laughs> yes, yes. Hence leading to the equivalent <laughs> of a PhD, right? <laughs> yeah. to, to learn all of that stuff. Uh, it, it is uh, it's amazing. Um, I just want you to know that here at WHIV, we're a radio station dedicated to human rights no, and social we're, justice. We're and we're focused on social, economic, environmental, and racial justice mm-hmm. as well. And uh, and I just think that, that you coming here to spread a word about peace, uh, yes, justice, yes. and compassion is just really yes. important and really resonates very deeply with what our mission here is at WHIV. Oh, thank you. And what, what, where at other places are you going to be going besides uh, to New Orleans? No. Uh, this next we are going to the Richmond. Uh-huh. Yeah. In California? Y- y- no, Richmond in uh, Richmond. Where is it? Richmond. Virginia. Virginia. Oh, Virginia. Virginia. Oh, Virginia. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah, got it, got it, got it. Yes, yes. So Virginia. is Louisiana, Virginia the two states? Yeah. We started the travel since August 28th, so we've been many different places. August 28th? Really? Yes. So we started you've been in the U.S. since? Yes, yes, wow. since August 28th, yeah. <laughs> so might be our travel until uh, November, so it's more than years. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And so you have two two colleagues here with you. Do yes. you want to uh, introduce yes. them? Or, yeah, or? sure. The, our chant master, Gishi Chamba Tenzin, and our mandala master, Gishi Lodu Jimba. And, yeah, and this true man. Got it. And, 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 yeah. and what is a, a chant master? Chant master in our tradition that got one person that have a uh, special ability to controlling their voice, vocal. We call it overturn chanting. They were master in overturn chanting. And uh, uh, the mandala master is that he has a great ability to... Uh, firstly, started from drawing and everything. He have a good memory, right. everything in it. So that, yeah. that's that's amazing. So tomorrow he'll be <laughs> doing the <laughs> yes, yes. And which, was, yeah, actually they have a five monks work on it. So they they all like a teamwork. Uh-huh. But one oh, special, I see. Yeah. Got it. Got yes, it. Got yes. it. It's teamwork. Yeah, that does yeah it, of course, with one person who directs yes, the, yes, the right. final so design. Yes, yes. So now I know that there is consideration of possibly having the chant master maybe give us an example yeah, sure, of sure, how sure. that works. Sure. Sure. So do you want to introduce him or bring him yeah. over? Yeah. This is a very special treat for all those that are listening. No, no, no. 
you know, thank you. Yeah, thank <laughs> that you. was that was amazing. If you're tuned in, you're listening to 102.3 WHIV. That was uh, a chant uh, master. Uh, a monk uh, who is from the Driprung Gomang uh, Monastery. Can you help uh, interpret uh, Minyak Rinpoche, what, what was just done here? Mm. What, yeah, what he, what he just did, was that, yeah. was that a particular... Yes, the particular short chanting and prayer for the world peace. For world peace. I yeah, love it. That peace, is awesome. Yeah. Did you, you film that? Did you? Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, that, that, is, uh, that is awesome. So I would imagine that that is... Are, are chants like that used in meditations or mm, yes, in, yes. In, in prayers and stuff? Yeah. Because there was a very mm. tranquil yes. sort of, you know, peaceful mindset that... Yes. that so... Uh, in our monastery, we usually do like this. So whenever we do meditate, before that, we do some chanting and pray. We not usually do like a chanting, uh, like a uh, chant master do in our turn, but uh-huh. we usually simple, yeah, prayer. We uh, Every time we do before meditations. Before meditations, yeah, yes. you do that. Yes, and that yes. kind of helps set the, yes, the, the yes, tone yes. for the meditation. Yes, because though, whenever they do chant and prayer, each of the words, they have a different meanings. Sure. So at the same time, we are thinking about the words meaning so right. it's kind of meditation also and and that that one in particular was for world peace right? yes, yes so yes. if you guys don't mind and if the chant masters don't mind i'm actually going to clip that out mm-hmm. and then just run that regularly on the radio station sure, sure. as something for, sure, for sure, world sure, peace sure, so sure. that that it was very meaningful to uh, me sure, so sure, sure. so thank you so much yeah. we just have a couple more minutes left i, I don't know if there's anything that you want to say mm-hmm. or finish off or, or mm-hmm. any other messages you would like to to, to get across yeah mm. <clears throat> i really want to say some few words uh in like we all have to learn about the own education of emotion systems which means that how to control your own mind and how to controlling your afflictive emotions not affect you much like uh, anger and desire so for that we have to learn about your own emotion through that you can get an antidote within yourself how to control your emotions if you can control your emotion you can your mind can at peace always so it's very very one of more useful and very much benefit for yourself and benefit for others so i just request everyone practice more about compassion and loving kindness yeah and i would imagine yeah. that meditation yeah, and mindfulness yeah. will get you there yes, right yes, yes yeah that that's amazing yeah. miss gail is there anything else or any other events i know that or is there a website that people can go to to, to find more information yes or facebook stuff um this evening we're going to have a puja for world peace and healing that's also in commemoration of march 10th tibetan uprising day yeah you can yeah go ahead um The opening ceremony for the mandala is tomorrow morning, and tomorrow evening we are also going to have a puja for the removal of negativities and obstacles. So at both these pujas, which are offerings, um, the monks will be chanting, and there might be a discussion afterwards or questions and answers afterwards. You can get the details for the schedule on Tibetan House Facebook page and Instagram, and you could try our website as well. Okay. For confirmation of these times. And, and, and the, w- the website is at is Tibetan Tibetanhouse.com. Com. Got yeah. it. Tibetanhouse.com. And, yeah. and there's information. So again, tonight from 7 to 8.30 is the Puja for World Peace and Healing in commemoration of the Tibetan Uprising. Qu- quickly, can we just, I, we have like two minutes, is the Tibetan Uprising, can you just explain yes, what that yes, is real quickly? Yes. 
March 10 is the Tibetan uprising date. It's one of the very saddest day in our Tibet. Uh, yeah. I could easily imagine that. Yes, because on this day, so many Tibetans uh, lost their life for the freedom. Yeah. Uh, and so we always, uh, what's this, um, always we celebrate this day. Sure, you like, commemorate. Yeah, pray for them uh-huh. and for the freedom. Right. Yeah. And I should have, and I knew that that was today, and I should have actually offered mm. condolences and sympathy yes, condolences. for yeah. the, the lives that were lost. I think yeah. it was 1940s or 1950s? N- 1959. 1959. Yeah, yeah. We, 1959, we, we lost uh, our freed, uh, our country, and 1980, might be it's 1980, yeah. In that day, uprisings, right, yeah, right. were big, yeah, were huge uprisings at the time. So uh, again, tonight, uh, seven to eight thirty, the puja for world peace and healing and commemoration of the mm-hmm. Tibetan uprising. That's at Tibetan House at forty nine hundred Chapatulas. And again, you can get more information at TibetanHouse.com. Tomorrow, from ten a.m. to eleven a.m. is the opening ceremony for the Sacred Sand Mandala for world peace, uh, and that is at the New Orleans Academy of Fine Arts. More information there is at N O A F A dot com. On Wednesday, March eleventh through the Friday, the thirteenth, from nine to four viewing of the uh, sacred uh, mandala for world peace that's going to be again at the new orleans academy of fine arts from 7 to eight thirty. the puja for removal of negativities and obstacles at the tibetan house at 4900 chapatulas and then at five from five to six o'clock on friday uh, march 13th is the dissolution of the world peace uh, mandala uh, minyak uh, rinpoche thank you yeah. so much it really thank is you. an honor and, and a pleasure